And welcome to another edition of Swing Thoughts. Everyone's buzzing around today because we have a you know big time PGA Tour winner, golf commentator, you know, cool guy, played on the tour, whatever. I've played golf with this guy. He's not that great on a Thursday. <laughs> are, you, are you all surrounded by your interns and your associate producers and sure. all those people? Uh, it's Swing Thoughts. I'm a golf spiritual leader, Humble Howard from the Humble and Fred Show. Tim O'Connor's there, Coach Tim. Uh, Guelph Griffins, O'ConnorGolf.ca, uh, Feeling of Greatness author, guy hung out with Mo Norman. How impressive is that, Dameron? You didn't hang out with Mo. No, I just saw him a couple times, but I'm not cool enough to say I hung out with him. Oh, yeah, O'Connor, O'Connor's like like Moe's buddy. That's how cool really? he is. Canadian, two Canadian legends. Um, it's uh, Swing Thoughts, as I mentioned. We're excited to have Robert here. We'll introduce him officially. Uh, welcome back uh, to the show. Of course, we're recording on the uh, 9th of April, Masters Friday. And uh, Tim, uh, our show now is on uh, your YouTube channel, and you can also get it on Facebook, and maybe one day we'll do a Facebook Live. But uh, great to be with you as always, Mr. O'Connor. And you too, sir. How are you doing early in this golf season? Fantastic. Uh, this golf season, of course, um, a lot of people excited about the new TaylorMade products. This program is brought to you by TaylorMadeGolf.ca. Uh, experience the drives every golfer wants to hit and no golfer wants to follow with the all-new Sim 2 driver only from TaylorMade. We'll tell you more about that. Of course, the Sim 2 irons are available, the unique hatback design. All of this and more at TaylorMadeGolf.ca. And Tim, uh, we're looking forward to looking good in Jonathan Wong apparel. Uh, some of the stuff Jonathan reps, these are some of the, the coolest names in golf. Fairway and Green, Zero Restriction, Be Dratty, Garb, and so much more. Find out more at JWApparelInc.com. All right. All right, let's all just relax. You know, he is a, uh, he's a, let's all take a cleansing breath. You know, it's Breathe. like the first tea. Everything is hopeful. <laughs> you know, is there any, <laughs> is there anyone more hopeful than a golfer on the first tee? You know, it's a beautiful day. You're not over par. You're not under par. Or terrified. Or terrified. Yeah. Um, um, excuse me. And just like this interview, it's going to go terribly that, south as soon as it begins. That's right. It's almost right. like a, it's this, this show should just be called Chaos Like Golf. Uh, our, our guest today, returning to the show, has had the first tee experience on the PGA Tour for several years. And on a Sunday in 2001, uh, shot a 66 in the final round of the Verizon. Um, I'm sorry, I was going really good there for a second. What's Byron it? Nelson. Byron, Byron Nelson. Nelson, right. I, I, <laughs> I was doing this from memory. The Verizon, I, I couldn't remember. I, I got the 66 right, and that's important. Robert, uh, you're with old guys. This stuff happens. Oh, yeah. I, I, just I, I lose <laughs> you don't even know. I, I couldn't be quizzed on how the show started three minutes ago. Uh, and and uh, anyways, Dameron won a playoff against another fine, fine player, Scott Verplank, and he's here with us today, Robert. Robert Dameron. Hey, buddy. How are you? 
Uh, I'm great. Listen, you made a face when I said, I said, he's a great golfer. He's played on the PGA Tour, but I've played golf with him. He's ain't, ain't that good on a Thursday. I remember playing with you at the National. I told this story last time. And I was like, we're playing along. At the time, I was close to scratch, and you're plus seven or whatever you were. But you're just kind of dinking it around. And I'm like, you're not, I was like, you're not that good. <laughs> and you said to me, we were chirping each other. I go, you're not that good for a guy on the tour. And you said, no. uh, I said, I may not be that good today, but I can shoot 67 playing with Greg Norman, and you couldn't. I went, good point. Oh, nice. I'm glad you remember that. That I do. seems a little arrogant to me. You know what I remember that day? You sneaking up behind the fella, and I don't remember his name, but he was the drummer for Triumph. That's right, Gil and Moore. And he kept saying things to him, and he can't hear because he's been drumming on him. <laughs> and you right. kept just saying the worst things to him, and he had no idea, and we're all laughing behind his back. Poor guy, he probably got that. He's a good player, too. No, uh, Gil Moore is another buddy of mine from Triumph. Yeah, exactly. His hearing was so bad that you never had to be quiet during his swing because he had no idea. Um, Robert, obviously, the one of the questions we asked you just in the pre-interview there is uh, about the Masters. Now, mm -hmm. why don't you tell that story about winning a tour event in 2001? And, of course, you're excited because you think, oh, I'm going to play the Masters. That is the uh, one thing you hear a lot of first-time winners say, wow, my invite to the Masters. And if you win a tournament, it's been that way since, you know, when I was a little boy. I knew that was one of the big perks, um, you know, along with the cars and the ladies and the, and, the, and all the big yeah, you know, of course. The glamour. Of course, yeah. <laughs> no, some, some other people, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this, they're just stories. But anyway, yes, in, in the end of the 2000 tour season, the uh, Augusta Committee chairman, decided, you know what, we're not going to allow winners in per se. It's just going to be uh, off the world rankings, a couple other other things, you know, top fives in the other majors. So I got uh, swept under the rug for that Masters in 2001 for having won that year. Now, a year, maybe two years later, don't hold me exactly to this number. They just switched the rule back. So I think it's really the Dameron rule. Oh, that's they, what you uh, call it. That's really funny. Essentially erased me from history, from their own history books, yes. Was I've been there many times, it's a special place, but I've never teed off of the first hole of the Masters. Must have been the intense lobbying effort that the Dameron oh, Corporation put on them. Had to have been, and, and Augusta, you know, they don't like being pushed. No. So I tried to get in there a little pushy, and they pushed back. Um, on, I, I want to talk about that day you won. Uh, you had a great final round. I'm just looking here, 66. You had a great tournament, you know, 17 under on the tour. I don't care what you say. You know, people will say about the golf course. That's a great score. You win the tournament. How quickly did you think, God damn it, I'm not going to play in the Masters? It took a long time. I, I was so overwhelmed. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it's really your lifelong dream as a kid. Is sure it's to play in the Masters, but it's to win. Right. And in that moment, it really didn't hit me. And then, you know, when you're finally done and you're back in the room, you're fielding phone calls and, and you're just on cloud nine, it really didn't strike me uh, all that much. It just was something that later that, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, like yourself right now said, uh, hey, you're not getting in. That sucks. And I go, well, <laughs> it does suck, but I'm not going to send the trophy back. So no, exactly. You know, it's just fine. It's just fine. Yeah, Robert, I want to go right there because, as you know, this this show, we talk a lot about what goes on between the ears. So mm -hmm. you're in contention. You got a chance. How did did you have thoughts of winning and did you have to battle with, you know, staying present as they talk about? You know, I've learned a lot, actually, since then. I didn't like looking at leaderboards and at the time because I go, you know, if I just play my game right, 
then the chips will fall where they may. In hindsight, I know I didn't look at leaderboards because I wasn't that confident. Mm. I didn't want to see myself up there and and then, okay, I need to, I've got a one-shot leader, whatever it is. Now, what do I need to do? I didn't want to have to go through all those, those things in my head because I wasn't as confident as, I mean, let's go to the top, a Tiger Woods who watches the leaderboard intently and knows exactly what to do at all times. Um, what I did and how I approached that day if I don't beat Scott Verplank, who is in my group, uh, in the final final group, final day, then I can't win. So I made it a, just a head-to-head with Verplank. Right. And I know we were both playing well. Neither of us made a bogey that day. Wow. And I could hear just chaos and, and bananas a few groups up, and that was Tiger Woods, who, was, who had played very flat and then was tearing it up. And I'm thinking, man, the last person alive that I want chasing me down or us down is Tiger Woods. So fortunately, he just ran out of golf holes before he could catch us. But it was it was just a match play day for me. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Masters and, and your, you know, what the experience of playing in it, even though you haven't, you you know people that have. But what is the experience? And I maybe we touched on this last time, but you played on the PGA Tour in the prime of maybe one of the best golfers that will ever play the game. And, and, and just talk a little bit, just to remind everyone, you've been on the range. I mean, I, again, I've seen you hit a golf ball. You're an amazing golfer. What is it like being an amazing golfer and then down there is a sound that you don't make? It's incredible. So I used to be a member at Isleworth, which is the same course Tiger was when he was in Orlando. And some days you'd hit balls. I hit balls with him quite a bit. Some days you're hitting balls and you're just talking and working on your game. And then occasionally the thought struck you that, behind me might be the greatest that has ever touched a golf club ever in history. Uh, you know, it's either him or Nicholas, but for sure, that's yeah. the two in the argument. I don't, whoever number three is, is, is a ways behind. So it was awe inspiring at times, but it, you know, it, it's one of those things. I called myself a professional golfer and Jack Nicholas calls himself a professional golfer. Jack Nicholas had 72 top tens in majors. You know, I didn't have 72. I had 19 top tens total in my career. So it's almost unfair yeah. for me to say, oh, we have the same job. You know, that's why, you know, what's funny is that statement or what I just said is what made me a little more skeptical of doctors because I, now if I get sick, I go for the, I try to get the <laughs> best one That's because I don't want the Robert Dameron doctor. I want the Tiger Woods doctor. That's great. You don't want the guy that won once. You don't want the guy no. that's in the hall of fame. There's an ocean of talent between A and B, and I don't want to be operated on. on, on There's know, another great statement. I don't want the Robert Dameron of doctors either. Timmy, no, no, Timmy no. what were you going to ask? I was going to ask, well, what was it like being in tour events with what arguably is the greatest player ever to play and contrast that to, you know, you're playing up against, say, other great players like Ernie Els or Sergio, but you got Tiger in the field. What impact did that have on players? Uh, not much on me <laughs> because I just was there. My, my goal when I got to a golf tournament and when I is to leave this golf tournament happy with my performance. Right. Uh, it wasn't go win. If I said, if I said, I'm going to go win this week, I, everything's clicking. And then Tiger played well, I'm going to lose. Forget mm-hmm. it. He's just going to be that much better than me. My goal was to leave the course happy. So you're talking about Ernie Els or a Sergio players that aren't used to losing or having people better than them. It destroyed them. Yeah. It, it, he, those are the guys that really crumbled on Sundays when Tiger was in the lead, the people that you think are going to catch him. 
it was the Bob Mays, like in the 2000 uh, PGA, who kind of had nothing to lose. That's right. At home. The Grant Waits in the Canadian Open when Tiger had to hit the six iron from the right bunker, uh, you know, at Glen Abbey. Those are the guys that they're great players, but they're not supposed to hang with Tiger. So what no, the heck? But you make a great you make a great point about Els and a few of those guys in the early 2000s. VJ famously VJ became number one in the world during the mm-hmm. Tiger era for a while there in 2004 or five, which is the anomaly because everyone else kind of got out of his way. But that's an interesting point. And I've read some about those guys and what it did to their psyches, because as you say, they just weren't used to being beat. I wanted to tell you, I've been reading this book by a guy named Thomas Coyne called Paper Tiger. And uh, for some of the older listeners, you know, they remember George Plimpton kind of put himself in the Detroit Lions training camp back in the day. And he called it Paper Lion about the experience of trying out for the NFL. And this was a book about the experience of taking a good amateur golfer. And what if for a year he had the best uh, swing coach, Jim Suddy, and he had a mental performance coach and all this thing. How good could he be? And it turns out not very because. No. And as he said, he got to scratch. And, and what I wanted to ask you, Robert, is what we can't relate to is we think, and in the book he talks about, the best player you know, the club champion, the scratch golfer, the guy with a plus one handicap, he sucks. <laughs> He's like, and, and he goes through all the different levels of players all the way to Tiger Woods. What don't we understand about how good tour players are versus just guys that can shoot good numbers around their course? Well, handicaps aren't based on tournament conditions either. They're you playing with your buddies and you turn your score in. So let's say that a tour player, and I don't know the number, but let's just say that they're a plus five handicap. Sure. And your club champion is a zero. And so in a four-round golf tournament, they should win by 20 shots. If you put that player in an actual tour event or, God forbid, a major championship or the, the players where there is incredible rough, incredible pressure – they're going to win by 50 or 60. They're really? not going to be at 20. It's it's the the level of, of being prepared for actual tournament golf as opposed to just playing golf and the level of being prepared to handle yourself on the hardest courses. And, and like you said, you take a great player, scratch, and say, okay, I'm, and even if they're 22, 23 years old, I'm going to bring in the best training, the best of everything. Are they going to improve? Sure. Are they going to get to that level? No. You have to have competed a lot as a kid yeah and there's just really hardly another way around it so it's through the experience yeah. i mean that that that's a life yeah. lesson right there it's through hard experiences that we learn and i and i think that's the thing that so many people just don't understand why even in their own club tournament yeah. you know club championship they, they go in and they throw up all over the shoes because yeah. they just don't have the reps in well, you know, Tim, you make a good, I, th- I think you make a good point. It goes back to what Robert was saying about looking at leaderboards. The reason Tiger Woods could be comfortable looking at a leaderboard, well, because he's been on the top of them since he was three years old. It's an experience that doesn't freak him out. But if you're playing in the club championship and the assistant pro tells you on the last couple holes, hey, you're close or leading, you're just going to take a dump in your pants. Yeah. You remember, you, you will. remember, uh, you remember Jim Colbert? He was a good senior tour player. Yes, of yeah. course. Popped and walked. Yeah, yeah. The kind of the hat, the, hat, the bucket the hat, sitting on his head. Yeah. The, the, the um, fake hair. <laughs> yeah, that underneath the bucket hat was the scary part. But anyway, I was in I was in a uh, a college event where he spoke, and I remember this vividly. He goes, "There's players in this room, left and right." And Phil Mickelson was in the room too, and he had already won on the tour. So he even said, "Phil, we're not worried about you." He goes, 
there are so many of you with the ability to win on the tour. And what's going to hold most of you back is fear, fear of the spotlight. You're scared to succeed. You have to be aware of that. And I think there's plenty of players that I've seen that I thought were world beaters that I played golf with at home or that I played in tournaments and they got out there and they collapsed. They could run to the end of the diving board, but jumping in the pool was a different story altogether. And I think that's a big thing that holds even the, the top level, you, not the amateurs at home yeah. that didn't compete. I'm saying even the players that competed and were, were pretty good players as a kid, that fear of spotlight held a lot of players back. Isn't that interesting? Well, I'm not sure we were talking about Mo Norman before we yeah, came I, think on be, I can't remember. I was 20 minutes ago. We have to, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, just, no, just, well, Mo talked about the comfort zone. Yes. And yeah. being in your comfort zone. And I think for whether it's uh, for a lot of tour players as well, they're not in their comfort zone when they're in the top five on a Sunday. And Robert, I got to ask you, are some of them even unconsciously going, I'm okay to finish third? Mm. Sure, of course there are. Uh, um, and even, I mean, there's there's the top of the top that aren't cool with it. You know, I'll take my third. I was glad that I was in contention, uh, but it didn't quite work out. But I think the vast majority of tour players, if they get in the hunt and they're right there and they don't, you know, like you said, puke on their shoes mm-hmm. and make a triple on the last hole. But if they played nicely and they finished nicely and they just got beat, they're they're fine with it. It's it's a lot of money and it's out of their control. But the Dustin Johnsons, uh, the Brooks Kepkas, they're not okay with it. I, I was going to say I was going to I wanted to say the sentence even guys like you. But it's let's let's be fair for you people listening. Winning once on the PGA Tour is an amazing thing. It really is, and I'm not just blowing smoke. It. it as a geek around the game, you know, there are lots of guys that'll play a lot. You know, Tony Finau is an amazing golfer, but how do you explain the guys won once? Well, I think we're explaining it. Sometimes certain, certain people get nervy when they're in contention. I, I wrote down something, you know, Robert's a very funny guy. I know lots of guys that are very funny, but there's a difference between being funny and doing stand-up. Because when I go on stage, it's, you know, it's like a, if everyone could, it's if it was easy, everyone can do it. Lots of funny people that I know can't make the leap to the spotlight because it's a, it's a different thing. It's like there's tournament golf and then there's golf. When you, when you stand up in front of people, it has a different feeling inside your body than it does being funny with your buddies at a party. And that's what I think of tour golf. Well, that's true. And, and stand-up comedy is a different animal than just being funny with your buddies. Because if you tell one of your jokes in a flat, monotone way, yeah, exactly. it doesn't go over. It, it, it's part of the it's a part well, of No, but too, part so. of the, the analogy I was going to say is if anyone that does it like me has been doing it for a long time. It's I've got I've got thousands of appearances. But if some guy goes, I'm just going to try it. Well, good. You, you go and enjoy yeah. yourself because you're going to sweat from places you didn't know you had you had perspiration. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, wait a second, are my shins supposed to sweat? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're they're fine. Um. Yeah. Rob, Let's talk a little bit about the Masters. I know you said you hadn't played in it, but you know people that have. You've covered it, I'm sure. Uh, Rob, by the way, if you're wondering where Robert is, you can hear him on PGA Tour Live these days. What's the experience like of playing in it from your perspective, and what's it like playing Augusta? Augusta is all it's cracked up to be. Um, you know, the first time I got there, I almost didn't want to believe this uh, I don't want to call it a religious experience but a holy place for golfers St. Yeah. Andrews and Augusta that's kind of it maybe Pebble Beach um, 
So I wasn't sure about it. And then outside the gates, it's just a little town, Augusta. It's, you know, there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and Chipotle down the street. Uh, but then when you pull in and go up Magnolia Lane, it is something awe-inspiring. Just the amount of of effort put into making every detail perfect. It is incredible. And it's it's a moving thing. It's And, you know, then to get to play there, part of you is scared. Am I allowed to uh, walk on this side of the fairway? Is somebody looking at me if I, you know, have to blow my nose? It, <laughs> it's it's you do feel a little intimidated. Am I allowed to walk on the grass or do I have to walk over to the cart path? Uh, you know, is, do I have a hair out of place while we're eating dinner? Those the kind of things allowed? enter your mind. Uh, no, never at Augusta. Are you oh, crazy? no, you can't. You, you fart. You're out. You, 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 no, you're never getting there. Just you fart safety. greens, you dust. It just oh. turns to dust. They would call it, they change it to like organic wind yeah, exactly. or something crazy. It's like, remember last? You they, fart you can't air call it freshener. The ball. It was organic material in the last <laughs> ball. That's funny. They are, they're beautiful people. They really are. And so, it's, it's an incredible. Well, tell, so talk about, uh, from knowing your friends and, and fellow uh, competitors that have played it, but so how did you play the first few times or the first time you played it? Did you play okay? I, no, it was cold. <laughs> we were goofing off and I was sore. Yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, loving it, soaking it all in. But as far as keeping a score, thank God I didn't do that. Because yeah. it would have been ugly. It would have been up in a, you know, Timmy? bad, bad place. So, Robert, I've been, I was fortunate enough. I covered seven masters as a journalist. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, you hear it over and over again that TV just not, does not convey the contour and the change in elevation. But what did you find in terms of the greens? I mean, you know, yesterday Augusta played really hard. Um, explain to us a little bit about what it's like trying to hit to those greens and those. And those you got to hit that section, or you're going to roll off or something. That's it. Most of them are huge, so you think, well, you know, hitting the green is not that big a deal. Well, guess what? Where the flagstick is. Yes, it's on the green, but there's a little portion to hit it to. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can use any part of the green and just walk up and two-putt. And then you're factoring in the misses. Where Where is the best miss? Where is the place that if I don't pull this shot off perfectly, that's going to leave me a, a reasonable shot of just getting away with par? Um, that That is why there's so much strategy to the Masters, and that's why since Fuzzy Zeller, no one's won the first time they played there. Right. It was 79, I believe. Uh, it is a place, of course, of experience. Uh, you know, we've seen it with uh, a lot of the great players win this. You, Nicholas and Tiger and Palmer win this event far more than even the other uh, majors they win because this is a place where other players need to gain the experience that they have and they're just not going to do it. You know, when, when we hear on this show all the time, you know, mental performance people, good players, professionals like you talk about, where's the good place to miss? And maybe could you take a second and talk us through that? Just what does that mean? Do you mean like, oh, you know, everyone's we know we all know the whole. So if you're hitting into 18, let's say you're in the middle of the fairway, maybe you're by that bunker. Are when are you? intentionally hitting it to the right side so that if you miss you're in the bunker like is that what you, is, is that what playing your misses mean uh, partially yeah it's it's where's the worst place okay short-sighted or there's water left uh, right. you know so that's why okay so let's say on 16 where the Sunday hole locations at the bottom you rarely see someone just playing right at it they always play the slope because mm-hmm. that gives you more room for error uh, essentially but you know it's not it's not airing towards the water but i'll tell you something a story that that floored me even as a guy that's been around this game forever 
Uh, and it was at Q School in probably 2008, which was unbelievable that David Duvall was there, or 2010 maybe. And he was the former number one player in the world. And we're talking about strategy on this course. And he goes, I just aim at the middle of every green. And, and from there, I know I won't make many bogeys. I'll make, I'll birdie some par fives, maybe make a putt or two and 67, 66. I go, you're, you're full of it. I watched you on tour. You're the best in the world. Uh, you know, you shot 59 at, at Bob Hope at the time. I go, you weren't aiming at the middle of green. He goes, I aimed at the middle of every green every time. And I go, that's just, it's unbelievable. So he, even the guy that had more control of his irons than anyone right. was playing very cautious. And, yep. and Nick Price told me the same thing. I play aggressive, but cautiously aggressive. So well, Scott Fawcett's here, I miss on the middle of the green side. That's a Scott Fawcett thing. That's a decade golf thing. He talked about Tiger being one of the most conservative iron players of all time because he knew that Tiger just knew that you you know hit it to 20 30 feet on the tough holes two putt those move on and you don't make a lot of bogeys Timmy well I think what we're talking about strategy is course management we talked a lot about that last year and I know that in my own game it made a huge difference but Robert when you watch Tiger uh when he won in 2019 in terms of uh number 12 there watching the rest of them rinse their shots he hits the green uh I think it was on 15 he hits it. What did you? What were you thinking as you watched Tiger uh, plot his way around that golf course in that final round? Well, it was uh, like a turn of a switch on twelve when everyone started hitting the water, and he went way left. And I go, "Wow, this is Tiger's tournament. This is it." I, I mean, I can't believe Molinari was arguably the best player in the world at that moment, uh, you know, and had been for six or eight months. Um, and, or one of them anyway. And he wasn't going to make a mistake. This guy was like Iron Man. He, he had played with Tiger in the British Open and didn't make a bogey and, and, and beat him, you know, down the stretch and just played like like a machine. And he collapsed in front of Tiger at, at Augusta. And that was, I think, a moment where for me, and I know for Tiger, he goes, this is mine. And he took 12 the exact way that Jack Nicklaus laid it out. Why players don't listen to Jack Nicklaus who won there six times. And he says, don't go with that right pin. Why don't they listen? Yeah, why I mean, don't? He's not trying. He's not in the field anymore. He doesn't yeah. care. <laughs> so know, he's yeah, not trying why, to beat you anymore. Why do you think that is? Is it because the tour player mentality is that I'm so good, I'm the exception, I can fire to the middle and have it cut to that flag, and then, oops, not, there's that wind. Not just that. You're in control of your game if you're there on Sunday. You're playing great. So yeah. it's not just I'm a great player. I'm not. I'm a great player who's also controlling my myself and my golf ball really well. So why would I take a nine iron or whatever you've got in your hand and aim 30 feet left? It just doesn't make sense. And I think that's what it is. I, I would say for me, I mean, I, I obviously when Tiger was winning, it was big. It, one of the greatest sports comeback, all that stuff. But last year when he took the 10 and, and for our, you know, the people that listen to our show, I said this at the time, the fact that he took a 10 and then played the next six holes, five under or something. I said to me, that's, that was a great lesson for all of us. You're, you know, you can be the greatest player that ever played. You can have a, an incredible meltdown. And what do you do on the next hole? Because if Tiger Woods can get it together, the rest of us can make our triples in our club championship and continue to try. Because that, that to me was as instructive as anything I've ever seen him do. There's two sides of that coin. And maybe I'm a pessimist. I probably am a pessimist. <laughs> Are you? But... There are many times that through, uh, you know, 27 holes, I played the back nine or the front nine on on Friday and know I'm going to miss the cut because I played so bad the first 27. 
that I shot 32 or 31 on the back. Okay. I just let it all go. It's yep. not trying. Um, Tiger Woods at the at the U.S. Open at Pebble the last time around where Woodland won was playing awful, and he shot something crazy on the back nine on Sunday. I forget what, 30, 31. And people are like, that's because he's still grinding and he's still fighting and he won't give up. And Tiger is a different animal. It very well is probably that. But there's also that other time where you're just like, I don't have it. It's done. Just kind of freewheel it from now on, and it and it. You know, I'll, gets a I'll give better. you that. I'll give you that. But on on when you're when you're Tiger Woods in the Masters, it's not to be fair. It's not us or you playing right. in front of nobody. It's the entire world watched him make double digits. I'm not uh, doububting you. I'm just being, no, you know, you're no, playing think, a fin, a fin, no. and I'm just I'm just throwing another option out. There. All right, I think you are doubting me. Sure. Uh no. that's fine. Uh I'm Timmy, just, well my take on that is that golfers identify I, I got to think that even if you're a tour player, multiple winner on the tour, I got to think that sometimes there's like this identity. You talked about the last time about this sense of arrogance. I remember that was very cool. Uh, about, you know, hey, I earned my way out here. I can hit shots. I have this degree of arrogance. So to me, what I connect to that is identification. Hey, I'm this player. I'm supposed to win. I'm not supposed to bogey my way in. What? You're a tour player. I'd like to ask you, in terms of that identification, how will I be judged? How will the media talk to me? Does that factor in? A little. I, I think... Your identification, you start off as a rookie without much experience. And for me, I was confident. I was I knew that I had earned my place there. I knew that I'd worked so hard and done all this for my whole life uh, that I was supposed to be there. And and, you know, of course, you're nervous when you first start seeing your name on the leaderboard, but it's cool and, and it's great. So the way later on you kind of identify yourself or I don't even want to say identify yourself, but your fears that you're having on the back nine on Sunday are from what you've done in the past. Yeah. Uh, wow, the last four times I was on the leaderboard, I bogeyed a couple holes finishing, and it's almost you create habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can do one of two things. You can either say, wow, I messed up those last few times, but mentally I know what I did, so I won't do that again. Or you can get the, woe is me, this is just how I do it, I suck. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, that mentality separates a lot of good players from great players. Well, you have the, I, I was going to say an advantage. I mean, you were a very good player early on, like a lot of tour players, but you also grew up around, you know, Bay Hill. Uh, Robert's father's a good player. I played with your dad, your brother, Patrick, a great player. Uh, in fact, at the time, I, I got paired up with him once at the shootout there, and I was like, Robert's pretty good, but this Patrick kid's amazing. And you're yeah. around a lot of good players, so it's not like for the rest of us, we're just all sort of living vicariously through our little silly games and then watching you on TV. But is is it become like you're, you're all of a sudden you're playing well in a tournament and all of a sudden there's the cameras. You know, you know if you're, even without seeing the leaderboard, don't you get a sense that all of a sudden there's more attention on you? Yeah, but you want it. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't on the range as a little boy dreaming of nobody watching me hit a golf shot. I was okay. dreaming of cameras and, and all that and, and trophies and spotlights. Um, and I, it didn't bother me really. I kind of wanted it. It bugged me when I wasn't on okay. uh, kind of more of that. So that, that was why I could take what I would call mediocre skill and make a, a long career out of it. So, um, that was part of it, part of the puzzle that, that put me together. And there's, there's players that I thought were just way better than me that didn't do as well as I did for that very reason. So, um, yeah, I just, I wanted it. I, I 
you know, I went on TV after my playing career. I never shied away from the front of the lens. I, I just felt comfortable. Buddy, you're on, you're on the award-winning podcast Swing Thoughts, for no God's kidding. sake. Look at you. Oh, I told you earlier, I'm <laughs> desperately clinging to relevancy. Any little, any little nugget I can get my hands on just to get my, my mug in front of a camera. I know when you first came on this Zoom call, I could tell you were breathing just to try and center yourself, get the butterflies information. Oh, yeah. you know, we know, we know. But oh, yeah, that's right. what's really interesting to me about, about what we're talking about here is that for most of us, us mere mortals as amateur golfers and in other parts of our lives is that please, dear God, may I not, as we say, throw up all of myself and embarrass myself. That's a 180 from what you're talking about in terms of bring it on, bring the cameras, bring the attention. This is my house. That's right. I'm here to play. I'm here to contend. That's the mindset that all elite performers and everything, that they take that. Let me add it. This is what I've been preparing for my whole life. And it's a mindset that's really difficult for people to get their heads around is that that's what it takes to succeed it's it's taking the risk of putting yourself out there like being stand-up comic well i was gonna say tim like, I, sure. I think that's a great point if i'm before robert i think that's a great point because most amateurs listening um we're the opposite it's like we got most amateur golfers play from a, a position of fear as in i hope i don't Comfort make a mis- and i and i hope i don't make a mistake whereas a good player goes i'm three under how do i get to six under well, you know and we've talked about this on the show you know if i'm if i'm under par too deep into a round i start to notice it i start to get a little bit excited it, it raises my sort of uh, arousal level they talk about in sports psychology and and I and I know from having done that a bunch of times that there's a point where I I don't I'm not comfortable beyond a certain level whereas what you're talking about Robert is that swagger that a that I want right. this this is why I've been doing this is why I've been hitting balls on the range you know next to who's on the range there Len Matisse was on the range at Bay Hill and Sky you know um not Scott, Scott Hope, probably. Oh, Scott Hope, all these guys. There you go. Uh, listen, before we let you go, I'm going to just put on the... Here we go. Hang on. Uh-oh. A tradition like no other. Uh, now our... As we say goodbye to Robert Dameron, let's just talk a little bit about... The 2021 Masters. Live from the Zoom room of Swing Thoughts, I'm humble. I'm humble Nance, along with Sir Tim O'Connor and... I guess who would you be? Novelo? I don't know. Uh, I'm the guy that kicked out the Faraday or McCord. Um, McCord, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Swing Thoughts, a podcast like no other. I I miss McCord. I miss Faraday. Anyway, what about, uh, just give us a quick um, couple of minutes of, uh, you know, Justin Rose went crazy yesterday, shot seven under. I know. It's ten. Seven under was like ten shots uh, below the uh, field average. What do you expect for this weekend? Well, he's been playing lousy going into this, and he yeah. was two over through what seven holes. Yeah, finished nine under went, the last. Uh, yeah, nine under the last eleven or twelve. I, I mean, cheese and crackers. You're just not supposed to do that, and it's unsustainable. He's not going to go out and win, but he's not going to do Tiger Woods at, at two thousand US Open yeah. by fifteen. Um, his, his he's been hurt. He pulled out of Bay Hill playing with Rory on I think it was on Saturday, and it's a Mastercard event, and he's a Mastercard guy. He would have never, ever, ever pulled out unless he was really, truly hurt uh so i have a lot of question marks for him uh the, the, my biggest takeaways again being a glass half empty guy i guess to shambo and mcelroy 
I, I had expectations. Two of the best drivers of the ball. We know how important driver is at Augusta. Um, Rory especially has all the experience out there as, as much as almost anyone. Um, and Bryson leaves no stone unturned, trust me. And man, they flat struggled. Mm-hmm. Flat struggled. It, it really was surprising. I didn't you know, expect them to do what Justin Rose did, but now they're, they're, I mean, they're so far back from Rose. It's almost with 54 holes to go. It's almost done. You, you know, it's the old saying, you can't win on Thursday, but you can sure as hell lose. And they may have lost. So going forward, Matsuyama has been playing great. He's been playing just great, but Patrick Reed scares me. He's on that leaderboard. He's the guy that's not scared of the spotlight. As a matter of fact, he, he, he thrives on chaos more than any probably athlete I've ever seen in my life. He's an awesome, awesome guy to watch, but it, it's going to be fun. I mean, weekend at Augusta, watching you know some of the best players uh, beat their brains out, and the course is not playing easy. So, if you had to pick a guy outside of what you've mentioned, Matsuyama, I don't give Justin Rose uh, much of a chance. Although he is, you know, right now I'm I mean, looking. Yeah, at, he's four. Him out, no, because really, if he could shoot, you know, uh, a couple under for the next three rounds, he'd be probably there or thereabout. That's around thirteen, fourteen, but. Uh, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, just a couple of thoughts about those guys. So Spieth, I, somebody asked me, should I bet on Spieth just a few days ago? And we know he loves Augusta. We know he's playing great. He finally just won, and he's been building up to his, his you know, next win for a while. He's been getting better. I, I was 50-50 whether he just rides it into Augusta or he has that little, even though it's Augusta, that little letdown. It's been so long since he won um, I still like his chances. I, I think he'll be around somewhere mm-hmm. up on the leaderboard Sunday. Justin Thomas is maybe. I mean, I, I'm, we're not supposed to have favorites. Do we have favorites? Yeah, Justin's one of my favorites. my favorite golfer. Yeah, I and, love and him. And I'll tell you why. He, his attitude of, I don't want to just beat you. I want you to be so embarrassed that you quit the game and you never come back to golf. <laughs> it's something you know that's just you, awesome to me. You talked about that last time in terms oh. of difference between – like really great players and, and excellent players, and I don't know if that's right, but Justin Thomas hates to lose. Hates it. Hates it. I'm Absolutely gonna. I'm stealing it. that. I don't want to just beat you. I want to beat you bad enough that you quit the game. Right. <laughs> that's yeah, the you best. Never, you sell your clubs. You on sell your clubs. You say this isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, pull that out in the net match play at Glen Cairn. I might. <laughs> Like I, here's the thing, I've got the parking spot now. I'm just going to put my name on it in a magic marker forever. Right, um, forever. Dameron, it was great seeing you. Thanks for responding so quickly. And I, and I, as I said this last time, this won't be the last time we ask you because if you need to cling to relevance, this is the place oh. to do it. Oh, the last, the last knot on that rope sliding down to oblivion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, when you do, when you do the uh, humble and Tim show, you know you're just about done. Right. Okay. Well, listen. We'll look. We'll look for you on uh, PGA Tour Live. I follow Robert, and you should too. At uh, I think it's at Robert Dameron on uh, on Robert Twitter. Dameron. Okay. And uh, the blue check mark thing. I'm going to wish you all the best, young man, and uh, stay safe and well, and and hope everything. uh, We'll talk to you soon. I promise. In fact, I'm going to. We're going to follow up in the next uh, month or two and get you back on uh, maybe during the next major. Be awesome. I'll be uh, somewhere to be found. I hope. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it, man. Would be All right. Good. Just Thanks, uh, man. allow Cheers. you can let yourself Absolutely. out there. Thanks, Thank Robert you. Dameron. There he is. Hang on, I got applause here. Here we go. There we go. I have a new toy. <laughs> what a job. That is lovely. 
This show is brought to you by uh, TaylorMade Golf. Um, and Jonathan, I want to make sure I get this right, because I don't want to screw it up. Jonathan Wong Apparel, right? You got it. Jonathan Wong Apparel. I can't wait to uh, be decked out in these, uh, these clothing. Royal Albatross is the line of uh, shoes that he reps. Oh, I'm and, so uh, jazzed to get the... To, dude, you're going to be... Honestly, the thing about us, we're going to be... We're going to look too good. People will be like, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> um, and, of course, tailor-made. Now, because of the um, pandemic, and uh, it's, it's just universal with, uh, you know, golf apparel, golf business. Everything is backed up. I sent you that note about when... Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to find the script here. About oh, the tailor-made stuff. The tailor-made stuff up. is back ordered, right? And I, and I'm hearing that everywhere in golf, anywhere in manufacturing, anything that's made with oh, uh, this thing called steel. Yeah. <laughs> so I I so I, I got a. I know you were getting you got fit for different stuff, but I got driver three wood hybrid. Three wedges are coming, and a new spider putter. But yesterday I picked up the hybrid the sim 2 hybrid mm. and and i i am a big hybrid fan taylor made makes some of the best ones that there are anyway when you're over 60 you should be a hybrid fan. I, 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 I got news for you i think my next set of clubs like i've i've gone down from two iron i had a two iron in my bag when i came back to golf in 2013 i had a, I had a really easy to hit uh tommy armor two iron then I got tailor-made stuff, and I had a three-iron. I had a gapper. I was still hitting long irons. Now my longest iron is a four-iron. But I want to say this. I might go to a four-hybrid. And, and I know that sounds weird to a lot of people, but they're so much easier to hit. Like, I like totally. a, like a four-iron off a tee, but I rarely will hit four-iron off the fairway. My point about this hybrid is I got it yesterday. I played yesterday. And... It's hard to imagine an improvement over the sim, but there's a nice, there's a feeling of, I don't know, more of the weight in the head, maybe. I don't, I'm not a technical guy, but that just feels better. So I, I don't want to scare you off. Uh, if you go to uh, your re- retailer, there's tailor-made product there. Check out the, uh, the new sim stuff, sim two drivers and three woods and hybrids. They really are something. And more uh, information at tailormadegolf.ca. By the way, I was uh, saw something you put up on uh, social media. It was uh, a, th- a string. I just read it briefly of you talking about Mo and a CNN documentary. I want to ask you about that or a CNN yeah, story. Um, yeah. Uh, ben Morse, who's a reporter for CNN uh, located in England, got interested in Mo. So he tracked me down. He interviewed me and Todd Graves, who teaches Mo Swing in the Graves Golf Academy. And yeah, they put a nice, this nice little feature together that ran this week, given that it's kind of Holy Week for golfers. And it was quite nice. Got to talk about some of Mo's history, best ball striker, why didn't he become a, a star, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, it was really nice. And it was, it was funny. I thought that it would just maybe show in the UK or something, and it showed, I guess, all over. So it was it was pretty nice. It, it showed, didn't it? <laughs> did it, it show? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I is, there, the, is there a, is there an industry word there that I'm missing? No, no, or, that's it, fine. 
Um, I just thought it was cute the way he said it. it showed. It showed every. It was on that thing, the TV. Um, it was on the box. It's hey, on Mom. the television. on the magic, magic speaking box. Um, I looked at the article. I haven't had a chance to. I just skimmed it because I knew we were going to see each other today. And uh, somebody asked about the picture of the four guys watching Mo hit balls. And who was the fifth guy? In the picture, so it's Couples, Price, Faldo, and Ben Crenshaw uh, watching Mo uh, at the National, and I, I have a story about that. But I, did you ever find out who that? Because I looked at the picture thinking I might know, but I don't know. Did you? That fifth guy? Yeah, is that somebody? Who's a should? photographer who didn't get the hell out of the way? I know it's ridiculous. He just and, and that everyone who looks at the picture, well, who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you know these days we like use some kind of software to just get him get the him hell out. out of there <laughs> that's really funny because it's this iconic picture of one of the best ball strikers that ever played golf and four of the biggest names in golf mesmerized by him and some doofus <laughs> is just sitting there and then what that photo bombed yeah he photobombed it <laughs> so I, I i think i've told the story on swing thoughts before but I, excuse me, for about three years, I hosted the Export A Skins game. I hosted it at, uh, in Tremblant, and I hosted it, I can't remember somewhere, and I hosted it at the National. So that picture, I, I always tell the story, there was about 100 people at the Nash that day for the Pro-Am. And I introduced Mo that day. And I, I think I told the story because I was working for the same people that had hired those four professionals. I had the same schedule. So I looked at our schedule and I said, okay, uh, pro-am in the morning. I could see where couples was going to be in price, et cetera. And then afternoon, they were not required anymore. They were able to go back to their hotels. And it just said, you know, four o'clock Mo Norman uh, clinic. So I had the microphone. I welcome everyone on behalf of the sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Mo Norman. And there was a grandstand set up on the range. So what you don't see in that picture is behind Mo is just a small grandstand. And so I introduced Mo and I'm like everyone else just, just sitting there watching him hit balls. And one by one, and none of those guys had to be on the grounds anymore. They were all could go home. One by one, all four of those guys came around the edge of the grandstand and during the clinic watched Mo for a half an hour, watched Mo and now photobombing that aside because that picture was staged. They came up next to him and they took that picture. But there's a picture at the National, a painting. There's a painting of those four guys with their sort of eyes you know a wide-eyed look on their face watching mo norman hit balls it's one of my it's one of my favorite things when i go back i always look at it because i was there the day it happened and and i'll tell you they'll finish the story by saying the guy who was the most interested and this is 1995 nick faldo was just mesmerized because you know faldo's the sort of most technical guy of that group and he was just I'm sure he's seen it before, but it was it was like watching a kid watch uh, Santa Claus. You know, it was pretty cool. That's cool. I I got to see that picture. I I didn't even know that existed. That that yeah. painting you you talk about. Yeah, it's but pretty cool. That for people who I'm sure there's many of our listeners who maybe have heard of this guy Mo Norman. Maybe some haven't. But the thing that people don't understand is that among golfers at the top level around the world mo is an 
absolute legend. Yeah. Not just for his eccentric personality and, of course, all the stories, some of which may actually be true. <laughs> That's right. But his ball striking ability was just unbelievable. And they would, and it speaks to every Tuesday at the Canadian Open at the Abbey, there was this little routine. And Mo would saddle up to the ropes there and and some pro would see him invite him in and Mo goes, oh, I'm only wearing street shoes. Oh, come on, Mo. <laughs> That's right. And then, and they'd say, hits these and he'd do the whole thing, take the club out and go, matchsticks, matchsticks, too light, can't hit them. And, and then Mo would hit and there would just be this horseshoe that would form around Mo and he would just dazzle these players with his clinic. And, um, I never saw it, unfortunately, um, but people who did uh, said that it was really something to behold. I imagine. Well, I've heard Paul Azinger talk about, you know, being a kid coming up to the Canadian Open and, and seeing, you know, Mo Norman for the first time and just being absolutely gobsmacked. But I'll tell you, in his later years, I would say at least once a summer, from about 1990 to, you know, into the 90s, I would just be there someday and, and Mo would show up. Like, it was the strangest thing. All of a sudden, I'd be, you know, you might finish your round, you're having a beer, and someone would say, do you know Mo Norman's on the range? I'd be like, what? <laughs> and I would, honestly, I, I, I would say it happened three or four times in my memory where he just happened to be, you know, maybe he was there to see, uh, for a while, our friend, the late uh, Ken... Is it Tarling? Ben Kern. No, no, not Ben. Ken Tarling uh, wanted to make, was started practicing at the National. Oh, okay. Remember Ken at the Glass Eye? Yep. Yep. And very fine oh, player. Ken, Ken Trowbridge. Ken Trowbridge, sorry. Yeah. Ken Trowbridge. So yep. Ken was hanging around, and I got to know him. Of course, I didn't remember his last name because I'm 100. But Ken Trowbridge started hanging around the National to get ready to go back to competitive golf. And I think Mo, somehow, I, I, maybe they were buddies. But Mo would show up, and there might be 30 of us. And I thought to myself, what a, how is this happening? How am I allowed to see this? Because if, as you, well, you, more than I would know, when you see it up close, it's, it's almost so odd compared to your normal guy <laughs> compared to your normal guy hitting balls you're like i don't even know what i'm seeing well that speaks to your reference to the thomas coin book about you think of like the best player at your club the cha club champion scratch they're shit oh yeah so you're talking so you're talking about great ball strikers on the pga tour you're talking mo norman you're talking a guy who is universally acclaimed to be in the same league with ben hogan lee trevino yeah George Newton, the, the, the big four, the, the uh, what do they call Mount Rushmore? Exactly. That's that's a different level of ball striking. So to be able to have seen it yeah. is is an, an amazing thing. But I got to tell my favorite Mo Norman story, which happened at the Nash. And so uh, in 1995, my biography of Mo, The Feeling of Greatness, came out. And the next year, uh, Ben Kern, uh, I. I was doing some work with him. He was the director of golf at the Nash. And he tells me this story. And he was giving lessons to Mickey Rooney. And Mickey Rooney at the time was doing some kind of dinner theater thing mm -hmm. in the Toronto area. Yeah. And Mickey was uh, an aspiring golfer. 
And Ben said that Mickey Rooney didn't have a very good swing. It was not very good at all. But like a lot of golfers had this great finish. You know, he could just kind of pull it together and <laughs> the finish the club behind himself and all this yeah. stuff. And Ben is giving this lesson to Mickey Rooney. And they're talking away and suddenly they both hear something. And it's like, what? What am I hearing? What am I hearing? And then Ben notices that Mickey Rooney has a has like this disgusted look on his face. And Ben turns around and he sees Mo walking towards them. And Mo is saying something, then finally and he doesn't know what it is and he finally hears it and Mo's going artificial swings for artificial folks artificial <laughs> swings for ar- artificial folks and so Ben just hot foots it to Mo that's goes, funny face to face and and Ben goes Mo stop it right now you have to respect Mr. Rooney or leave that's funny man Mo turns right around and doubles his volume, walking to his car, artificial swings for artificial folks. Unbelievable. And so Ben tells me this story, and this is, that's, I think that's my favorite Mo story. You know, a reason I'll get into it in a second, but um, I said to Ben, Ben, why didn't you tell me that before? He says, because I thought you might put it in your book. <laughs> so I saved it for the second edition. Mm-hmm. But anyways, just to just summarize this, what I love about that story, it talks about how Mo, like golf for Mo, was almost a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just hitting a ball, being known as the best ball striker who ever lived. Yeah, he liked it. But a guy like Mickey Rooney, to him, didn't have integrity. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he kind of like. He was trying to do this golf thing, but he would like fake it. Right. And that is the reason that it sort of hit Mo sort of in his solar plexus. And <laughs> so I thought that I, I love that story because it's damn funny. Uh, but it speaks to that other level of how the the game of golf was in Mo's soul. Um, absolutely. I love that, too. I was just thinking, you know, again, being lucky enough to play there on a new band very well. And I knew, you know, a bunch of people that would show up. It was a pretty neat experience for a young golf geek like myself, especially because I grew up playing golf at the Moose Jaw Golf and Curling Club. So, you know, I, I, my perspective about golf courses has always been informed by the fact that the first course I ever played had sand greens and I was a member of the Nationals. So I've got a bit of everything yeah. in between. And that's why when guys complain, oh, these greens are shit or this golf course sucks. I'm like, well, it's way better than the one I, I played in Moose Jaw, you know. And uh, maybe not quite as good as the Nash, but the other thing that made me laugh is every once in a while, you'd go into the locker room and Eddie Shack would be there having a shower. For a while there, Eddie would just be like, because he knew somebody and he was like on his way to an event. He just stopped. He would stop and have a shower. Um, Lee Trevino, you mentioned this. I, there's two quotes I want to finish with this week because we're done in about 10, 15 minutes. But Lee Trevino, um, again, one of the four horsemen of the uh, golf apocalypse. Um, Lee Trevino, you know, people used to sort of not make fun of his swing, but he didn't have a traditional motion like Mo, you know, Ben Hogan got his own thing. George Newton had his own thing. But Lee Trevino's quote was, I wasn't trying to learn to make perfect swings. I was trying to learn to perfect my swing. And I thought, 
wow, you know, like that's a great lesson for all of us. Even though all of us think, wow, there's something wrong with my swing. If I could just do this one thing, then I would be great. But the fact is, we all have a swing, especially those of us that are this age and we've been playing this long. You know, I like working on things a little bit because it always could get a little bit better. But that thing about him saying he was just trying to learn to make his swing better. I thought that's pretty interesting because in the in the 70s there, Lee Trevino didn't have the same, you know, uh, cachet as, say, Nicholas and Palmer. But he it turned out he was a better ball striker than all of them. Oh, absolutely. And, and well, Lee Trevino, um, a forceful personality, uh, you know, you don't go from living in a house with a dirt floor to winning on the PGA Tour unless you have a very, you know, iron constitution. Yeah, a lot of belief strong, in yourself, sure. Absolutely. But that speaks to this thing that we get sucked in through golf culture about trying to do it right you know, match whatever you read in Golf Digest or YouTube or, or whatever. And you can still learn a ton of great stuff through that. But as our friend Carl Morris says, it's what do you own yourself? It's your swing, your motion, your golf shots. And and I, I think that that's where a lot of people, like, well, look at, okay, back to Mo here. Talk about a very different looking swing. I mean, even when Mo was just coming out in Ontario in the in the fifties, people would look at him and go like, "You can't hit it that way." Mm-hmm. You got your right hand right under the the grip like that. You got this big wide stance. You got your arms extended like that. No one hits it like that. Well, Mo Norman made it work for him. Well, in a Does way, work for everybody else. Don't well, know. But here's the thing: is it, it could, but you, uh, you know, you what you're saying about what people said in in the fifties. Uh, you know, what is the big story early in the week of the Masters? It's Bryson DeChambeau doing these speed drills and trying to get better this way. You know, people inherently, culturally personally are averse to change it's why you do what you do we're fearful of things that are different this is what you know a lot of problems in life are we're f- and so there's a fascination around bryson dechambeau um a lot of it complimentary but a lot of it is just a bit like what's he doing why is he wrecking our game why doesn't he look like everyone else well it comes right back to what we we're talking about with robert dameron about taking the risk to do things a bit differently to put yourself out there because why do so many people hang back in their lives because they don't want to be judged yeah how will i be how will i compare how will i be evaluated and oh my gosh that is such such a powerful thing and it's so natural <laughs> we're social beings yeah you know we we want to fit in with everyone and to be viewed as weird or something that takes a strong person like a Trevino, like a Bryson DeChambeau to go against that yeah. and to be like, OK, I'm doing this thing differently. Uh, you can laugh, whatever. I was going to say, imagine you're, you know, most of us and, and this was kind of Mo's experience at Augusta. But, you know, there's Monday and Tuesday on Live from the Masters and everyone's talking about DeChambeau doing these drills. And there's a great shot of Vijay Singh looking in and watching him do his work. Most people would shy away from stepping outside of the establishment. But I want to read you a quote from this book I've been reading, this Robert K. Winter's book called Mistake-Free Golf. And again, we don't love the title. 
but it, when, mm-hmm. you'll, you, when you get into the book, you'll see what he's talking about. But a lot of it is just very, you know, it, it's just interesting. It's, it could be, I'm going to read you something that could describe anything. It just happens to be about golf. But he says, when you start to care more about what others are thinking about you than what you think about you, your misdirected mind can only lead to trouble. So let's take it down to the the macro level of you're on the, the first tee at your club championship. All these things that you're thinking about what others are thinking and what others might be doing is your misdirected mind. It's mindfulness brings you back, as Mr. O'Connor famously says, into your body. Your body is on that first tee. It's you and your golf game. And what Robert was talking about is tour players are very narcissistic and self-absorbed in their bubble. And most of us are, we care more about what others think of us. That's why the first T is so whatever for a lot of people because you're intimidating intimidating because you're caring if your buddies see you hit a bad one. You know, it's like my buddy Marty Chuck, our friend from uh, Tour Striker Golf in Phoenix said to me, he said, if you want to be a good tour player, you've got to remind yourself that you've hit bad shots before and just rip at it. Doesn't because because and it's true because a lot of times we hit shots carefully so that we don't get in trouble. But you and I are decent players. We've been in trouble before. We've chipped out of the trees and then got on in three and made a par. You know what I mean? Like we we just play in such a, a world of fear of failure. But the the true joy I think comes from getting rid of some or as much as you can exactly and the and the irony of it is that the drama is all in our own heads yeah most people don't give a crap about how you play or what you look look like Mm -hmm. it's it's your own drama and you know that's just the way our egos work they're 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 geared to this negative bias because what's our, our brain exists to keep us alive so it's going to go to those negative places but that doesn't you know that served us when we were like mouth breathing knuckle draggers and there's some people still like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> but I know. it doesn't serve us in april 2021 yeah but so it's to get so again you know comes back to that old thing we talk about ad infinitum awareness oh Right now, I find myself thinking about what that guy thinks or what someone thinks. And you know what? doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm going to play my game. What do I need to do? I could just maybe breathe, come back to my body, whatever, hit my shot. And if they're going to laugh, let them laugh. That's right. And, and, and the fact that we've all... You know, I'm going to read you the last quote I've saved from uh, this. I uh, call him uh, Dust Zen. Dust Zen Johnson. <laughs> And here's why. He says, um, it would be better if I actually had this in front of me. Hang on a second. But, you know, a lot of people, um, I saw a great thing on Dustin Johnson that Wayne Gretzky, uh, his father-in-law, had talked about Dustin learning from, from Gretzky a little bit about how his career changed once he became involved in the Gretzky family and, and, uh, you know, had somebody who had been at the height of his sport in hockey giving him some advice. But here's what I love about Dustin. He said, I hit bad. Sh- this is this is the last thing I'm going to I'm going to I want to say. And then you want your comments on this. He says, I hit bad shots every day. 
Every day I hit bad shots, so why would I get mad at one? That'd be stupid. And I know it, it seems simple, but I thought, you know, that is some righteous golf wisdom from Dust Zen Johnson. It, and it made me think, you know, if you can, the more equanimity you can have around your bad shots... And there's something about early in the golf season when we're all just so happy to be outside and grateful that golf didn't get locked down. You know that if you're playing this weekend, you're going to hit a series of bad shots. So why would you get mad at one? And you do it. By the way, I'm going to hit bad shots every day I play until it snows. Your thoughts, Mr. O'Connor? Well, uh, um, it's so cool the attention there's there's i think there's a greater understanding of dustin johnson now rather than just you know he's not the sharpest you know light on the tree or in your drawer or whatever (laughs) but i think people are starting to see how smart this guy really is you know in that very clear concrete way like just the way he said that you know to worry about that would be stupid i mean that's brilliant in its simplicity I, i i love it and but again, it's that ability. Like he, he does his, his identification, how he sees himself. It doesn't rise and fall with every shot, for gosh sake. Yeah. And, you know, but I, I want to make this connection as maybe not as concrete as I might like it. But I'm playing yesterday, playing with three guys never met before. I'm on the 14th tee at <laughs> Blue Springs. And um, I'm getting tired. I'm getting tired. I'm actually yeah. old guy hurting left hip thing. And uh, <laughs> That's right. I hit the ball as dead left as I ever could off that tee. I almost missed the parallel fairway number six. And I just said, that just happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they didn't care. You know, they just wondered, are we going to get this round in before we run out of daylight? Yeah, yeah. But I was kind of proud of myself for not... Thump it. Like, it was the worst tee shot I ever hit off that hole. Um, it was almost like, you know, Ian Baker Finch at St. Andrews, you know, almost missing like a 400-yard That's funny. fairway. But I, that was your line, actually. That just happened. That just so, happened. I don't know. It, it's just, oh, I was just able to, I kind of laughed at myself a little bit for hitting it that badly, but I was kind of laughing, went, okay. I didn't live and die with that. Well, no, I, and I love it. And I, just, I, I think that's such a, a instructive, the idea of being, not just being okay with hitting a bad shot, but expecting it and not, what I loved about what he says is I hit them. That's Dustin Johnson is the best player, according to the official world of God, the best player on the planet. And he's not stressing out about bad shots. And now the the pessimist might say, well, that's easy for him to say because he knows he's going to hit good shots. Well, guess what? So are you. You know, that's the other thing. And and, uh, our friend Ed Collins said that to me several times. He said, you know, at your handicap level, you are going to hit world-class shots in every round. So just be comfortable with that. Now, he's being nice and maybe they're not world-class, but I've played some golf early in this season i played some nice golf i've hit some squirrely shots i've three putted a couple times three putted three times yesterday two of them were 70 foot putts 
And when I and I did them consecutive holes, one hole I hit the wrong. I hit a beautiful swing, but I was seventy feet short. Hit the wrong club, but it was a nice swing. And you're gonna three putt that next hole. I hit a good shot, beautiful swing. It was too far, seventy foot putt. But then I birdied the next hole after that because I was like, I was able in my emotional stability to go, you know what? Those are. That just happened. You know, I I didn't sit there going, I three put all the holes. It just, I was able to go, you know what? They were good shots. They were the wrong club. I was out of position and it just didn't work out. But then I birdied the next hole and I just kept on playing because that shit's going to happen in every round. You know, when you and I played a couple years ago, and I remember I was just distraught. We were playing on a men's night, and I'm so mad that I couldn't stop three-putting. But you know what? I'm going to three-putt in some rounds of golf. It just happens. Well, what this speaks to, to me, this connects to what we've been seeing the last couple of months on the PGA Tour. Players are playing with a, with a sense of, of lightness. We saw it in Lee, in Lee Westwood. You know, at, at Bay Hill, the players, he's smiling. If the putt goes in, great. If it doesn't, he shrugs it off. You know, and I'm sure that a lot of it was just here he is at, you know, 47, 48. And wow, I'm competing with the best in the world here. Yeah. But I do think that he's he he's just sort of adopted this this new attitude. And then I think the guy's name is Robert Diaz. Yeah. Uh, Corn Ferry player had not won in 112 starts on that tour. And Golf Digest made a big deal of this. And they said that he's, you know, I don't care if I win. I don't care if I lose. And the, the, I remember in the headline said something about this was a shocking declaration. I went, no, you know what? This guy's got his head screwed on right. Whether you win or whether you don't, you're still going to wake up the next day and you're going to be the same good person with the same good things and not so good things. Mm-hmm. But... Jordan Spieth, yeah. when he won last week, what did he say in that post-round interview? He went into Sunday with this sense of lightness. Of lightness, That he wasn't exactly. going to live and die. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, I don't know, I think that's a big change for Jordan Spieth because one of the things that always kind of, when I watched him play, there, there was always this kind of this, this, uh, this electricity and, and get the towel and Michael, I think this is the right shot. Yes, it's the right shot. And No, he still does that. That's just how he plays. I guess, but I, but I just think that overall he's not quite as uh, mercurial, if you will. I love the fact that, uh, anyways, he makes a triple on nine yesterday. A friend of mine texted me this morning. On the way to 10, he sees a buddy in the crowd. Hey! Yeah. <laughs> He goes After making a triple. He goes triple, and then what does he do? He birdies the next hole. And I would tell you that uh, my biggest takeaway from the last two or three years, especially in tournament situations, but in everyday golf, is the knowledge, and maybe it's arrogance, a little bit of arrogance, knowing that whatever has happened on that hole isn't who I am. I'm not defined by it, and that if I just don't get emotional, which is, I, I think, it's something that we don't talk enough about our emotional state because when we talk about state management that's what we mean handling the emotional 
whatever fuckery so that you're on the first tee and you don't care that your buddies are making, you know, whatever, because we all know that everyone has seen us hit that shot dead left or the squirrely one to the right or like, you know, we've said this a thousand times. Your bad shots don't mean that you're a bad golfer it's not a person it's golf doesn't golf's not mad at you i used to think golf hated me <laughs> uh dude i gotta get why going is, you gotta get going uh, why does golf hate me i used to say that golf hates me today uh thank you to robert dameron what a great guest we're gonna get him back I, we should just get him back on every major that just should be a natural uh, tradition Tim, like no other exactly uh everyone happy masters enjoy your weekend o'connorgolf.ca catch up on all things tim we're going to post this show on uh, swing thoughts on o'connor's uh, youtube channel and of course catch up with all the goings on at humbleandfredradio.com thank you everyone see ya you feel all right when you hear the music ring.